Welcome to the New Books Network. We all live surrounded by objects, some practical, some personal, some handed down from family generations past. But though we interact with material things every day, we don't often stop to consider the complex histories and stories of the objects in our lives. What they say about our culture, our families, and ourselves. Over a lifetime, we accumulate these things, and when we die, they serve as evidence of who we once were and how we once lived. When writer Julia Ridley Smith's parents passed away, they left behind a home full of treasures. As lifelong antique dealers, they collected scores of unique objects Smith struggles to sort through as she processes her grief. From her mother's miniatures to her father's favorite record albums, the objects of their lives cataloged their passions and humanity. How could anyone just give those things away? In her debut essay collection, The Sum of Trifles, Smith considers the complex relationships we share with objects through artifacts from her childhood home, expertly braiding original research and personal narrative to get at the heart of how our loved ones can live on after death, whether through the things they cherished or our memories of them. Today on the New Books Network, join us in conversation with Julia Ridley-Smith about her thoughtful and timely essay collection, The Sum of Trifles, available now from University of Georgia Press. Julia, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me, Zoe. So the first essay in the collection, Always Magic, establishes that your parents were antique dealers and finds you in the process of emptying their home after their passing. So to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about your mother and father as people? What was your relationship to each of them like? And what was your role in assisting with the family business? Yeah, sure. So my... My mom and dad were antique dealers. They had a shop here in Greensboro, North Carolina, where I still live. And my mother had, you know, originally thought she was going to be a school teacher. Um, So she had studied English in college. She came from a family of antique dealers. Her parents had been antique dealers for a long time, and they had also worked in historic preservation, working on a historic house. So she came from a background um, that was really invested in the exploration of history through material objects. Um, And she was a reader and had, you know, trained in English. She took graduate courses in English. She was always taking us to plays and theater. Um, So she was very invested in this idea of kind of raising us to, and when I say us, I mean me and my brother, taking us to as many cultural opportunities opportunities as she could here in Greensboro um, and beyond. My father had come from a different sort of family. His um, parents came from Georgia. They were um, not well off, and he had not finished college, although he did go. Um, But he also was very invested in the idea that we should be well-educated. He wanted us to kind of learn to think for ourselves. He was very into, you know, wanting us to have independent thought and think for ourselves. So they were both very invested in the idea that my brother and I were to grow up uh, curious and with intellectual pursuits. Um, My mother was the parent that I was closer to. My father had kind of a mercurial temperament, um, and he was often in a, frankly, in a bad mood. So my mother was the one that was the person that I wanted to be around more often. Um, and so that relationship kind of comes through in the book, I think, um, as well as the one with, 
you know, my relationship with my dad. As far as my role in assisting with like the family business or their shop, I was dragooned into helping with, you know, packing for shows and doing inventory and things like that when I was little, but I wasn't so much interested in the antiques business um, in the way that my brother was. He started buying antiques when he was a boy. As soon as he had an allowance or could make a little bit of money, he would go with my mother to flea markets and shops and pick up um, tools and things that were inexpensive at the time that he could get for a couple of dollars. And then he, you know, would take them back to the shop and do research with my mom and her books about to find out what they were. Um, And she would help him price them. So he really was kind of a dealer himself from the time he was little, whereas I tended more to creative um, pursuits and writing. And that's where my mother and I really came together intellectually was over words. So throughout the essay collection, you continually reference Sherry Turkle's idea of thinking with objects. So first, what does it mean to think with objects? And then in what ways did your parents teach you and perhaps also your brother, since you mentioned him, um, to view objects through these lenses? Yeah. So I love this idea, um, Sherry Turkle's idea of thinking with objects, which comes from a book called, um, I think it's called Evocative Objects. Um And she, in that book, each essay is by a different writer talking about an object that has meant something very important to them. Um, And that's kind of what I do in The Sum of Trifles, although the objects aren't always necessarily um, important to me in in the way of sentiment. Um, They're more important in the way that they represent something about my life, my relationship to my parents, or kind of um, the broader culture in which I grew up, or cultures, our home culture, and then sort of the the culture out in the world. Um, So these objects provide a way to kind of explore different associations. Um, So those might be family stories. They might be um, things about growing up in the South. Um, and my parents were always teaching us through objects. So growing up in their antique shop or in our house where there were all these antiques, you know, in the course of daily conversation, my mother would be pointing out an object, telling us a story about it, telling us something about, you know, the place where it was made or how it was put together. She was always, you know, picking something up and flipping it over to show us maker's marks or um, the joinery on a piece of furniture. So we were always interacting with the objects in the house or in the shop. They weren't static. And um, because there were so many stories connected with them. And then the research that my mother was always doing, whether that was for objects she bought that she was planning to sell in the shop or things that she bought that she planned to take home. um, There was always this constant process of research going on. She had collected a big library of, of books about antiques and about art. So, you know, that was something that was pretty common once or twice a week, we might be sitting down in her office, um, you know, pulling out books. If she was working on an appraisal for somebody, she would have my brother and me helping her pulling out books. Um, we would be going to the copy shop to make Xeroxes about, um, you know, 
a piece of furniture or a piece of porcelain. So that part, that research about objects and the storytelling about objects was kind of baked into my growing up. Yeah, and baked into the book too, in a way. It's it's definitely like a strong thread throughout because each essay in the collection actually introduces an object from your parents' home that you and your brother Moreland chose to either keep, donate, sell, trash. Um, so could you talk to us a little bit about that as an organizing principle? What did centering these objects allow you to do that maybe would have been difficult or impossible in, I don't know, like a more traditional memoiristic structure? Yeah. So I said objects as an organizing principle were helpful because each object could kind of operate as a hub with that all these different spokes of association and storytelling came out from. Um, So for instance, one of the objects that I take on is a Japanese screen that my mother bought. And it had had a scene from the tale of Genji on it, which is a, you know, a thousand year old Japanese novel. It's often talked about as kind of the first novel. Um, So that object allowed me to do a lot of things. It allowed me to talk about uh, my mother's family history because the person that they bought the screen from um, was a descendant of Nathaniel Hawthorne who had, um, and that one of his descendants had been a roommate of my grandmother's at UNC Chapel Hill. So I could talk about that kind of cultural and family history at the same time, the history of um, not only American, you know, liter- uh, important American literary figure, but the history of um, the early settlers in New England. So, you know, I had the objects were providing me, me this way to kind of kind of leap from association to association, but I could c- kind of follow a thread out but always have the object to come back to, right? So, you know, another direction that object could take me in was in thinking about becoming a writer because of the association with the novel. So these objects really gave me a way to think about different threads um, while at the same time kind of always being able to come back to objects um, in a way that maybe keeps the reader hopefully grounded in what's going on, kind of always coming back to the path. Whereas with a more traditional memoir, and I, I couldn't even conceive of how that was going to work um, for the story that I wanted to tell, because if it were just, you know, a telling of me and my brother going into my parents' house and trying to sort through all these piles of stuff and talking about our feelings, I didn't see how that was going to be very interesting to a reader um, or to me, for that matter. Um, yeah. And so I really enjoyed being able to use the objects as an organizing principle and then having this kind of freedom to either go down the road of memory, the road of storytelling, the road of research. Um, and it let me do all of that. It did. And, you know, your, your love and enjoyment of that process really shines through in the book. Thank you. Most of your essays actually do incorporate independent research. And, you know, you mentioned that this is a quality and trait and habit that maybe you picked up from your mother. Uh, But it does delve into things like your family history, which stretches back to antebellum America, 
um, as well as the various historical contexts of objects, fads, other kind of relevant ephemera. So as a writer, can you tell us what the process of researching for the sum of trifles was like? And how did you make decisions about what to include? So the process of researching, you know, anybody who's embarked on research um, for anything knows the dangers, especially in the internet age of, you know, the rabbit hole. Um, and I certainly went down some of those. But the the by pursuing these different objects, you know, that kind of kept a rein on what I was doing. If I had an object, I... Um, I first tried to think about, you know, stories related to the object, and then I might do some research, like for the Tale of Genji screen um, essay, I did some research into just um, the Tale of Genji itself. I read, you know, I didn't read the entire thing, I confess, because it is like a thousand pages long, Um, but I read a, a good enough chunk of it to kind of get the flavor of it. I read a little bit of literary um, analysis, the critical uh, work on that novel. I looked up, you know, I worked on um, some research about just Japanese screen making and the history of that. So it kind of led me into these different places with the research, which I really enjoyed a lot. Um, And then you know, I had more than I could possibly include in the essay. Um, So I had to think about how I was going to kind of winnow it down and cut it down. And actually, a writer friend of mine really helped me. Um, She read an early draft. And she reminded me that, you know, I needed to make my voice be the prevalent voice in the book, not the voices of the scholars that I wanted to quote. I think in the early stages, I was having a little bit of imposter syndrome because before coming to this book, I was a, uh, really strictly a fiction writer. I had not really written um, essay or creative nonfiction. So I think in the early phases, the research was also part of my effort to kind of give myself some legitimacy as a nonfiction writer, because I, I wasn't sure that I had any. So, um, so I thought, well, if I, you know, if I quote all these other really smart people, um, that'll make me sound smarter. And my friend said, that's all great that you have this research and it's interesting, but you need to, you know, shift the balance and remember that it's your voice and it's your story that you're telling And these other um, voices are kind of should be working in service to that story, not overwhelming the story. So that was really helpful advice to me as I was bringing in all of this research. Right. And you found that balance beautifully struck it. Thank you. Many of the essays describe a place called Oaklana, which is a beloved family home that has kind of a fraught history. Um, In the quilt and in other essays in the collection, you reckon with a family legacy in which some of your ancestors owned enslaved people, the history of which is in many ways preserved at Oaklana. So my question is, why might examining objects and family stories with a critical eye be important when reckoning with our nation's long history of racism and discrimination? Yeah, so there there's that chapter about the quilt um the quilt came from part of the family that was from Southampton County Virginia and the house that I talk about Oaklana was in um 
Eastern North Carolina. Um, it had been in my grandfather's family since, well, that house was built in 1827, but his family had owned the land that the house is on since the 18th century. Um, I mean, they had been made a land grant by a colonial governor, right? So it had been in the family for a very, very long time. And I grew up going to um, going to visit my grandparents there. It was where we had Christmas every year. I had wonderful family memories associated with that place and with the people who lived there. Um, and there were so many great family stories that were told. So, you know, I really, in my youth, looked at that place um, pretty much sheerly from a point of view that it was... A, it was the seat of all my, you know, great family memories. Um, in adulthood, as I was learning more about Southern history, American history, the history of slavery in America, I started thinking more about how that place was associated with that legacy. And that complicated my view of that place um, in a way that I think is really important. And when you ask about, you know, how does examining objects and family stories with a critical eye, I think it's something that naturally many people want to avoid, um, you know, because you feel a loyalty to your family, you have a love for your family, whatever the situation may, you know, recognizing that all families are complicated. Um, still, I think there is a reluctance to examine our personal connections with history and objects can help us do that. Um, I think because it gives you something outside of yourself to, to look at and to sort of start the process with, I think that objects can be helpful. Um, and I think it's important for all of us to kind of look at our family history and particularly for white people to, in America right now to be looking at family history, to look at the ways that we are connected to um, privilege, um, to thinking about the access that our whiteness or our social class or our um, financial condition has given us perhaps more access to things that have enabled us to succeed in various ways um, and to realize how connected all of that is, right? So the objects give us a way in possibly to that examination. And I think it is important for people, you know, to, to give some thought to this because I think otherwise it's very easy for a lot of people to say, um, people to, to think that they're not connected because all of this was so long ago and far away. Um, and the fact that you can hold in your hand or um, be looking at an object that's sitting in the room with you that has been a witness to that history, is it provides a tangible connection. Um, and to me, that feels important. And so if you have objects like that in your house or in your family, I think it's important to take a pause and look at them and maybe learn something about the history and let that be kind of a door that maybe takes you into considering how your family is positioned in the web of history. In a later essay, you mentioned developing a compulsive phobia of germs after losing your mother which proved extremely disruptive to your life. 
So how might this phobia have been tied to your grief and perhaps also to the process of going through your parents' belongings? In what ways might objects such as heirlooms simultaneously aid and also hinder the grieving process? Yeah. So that essay, The Horror Vacui, was um, really probably the hardest essay for me to write because it was the most revealing um, about the the kind of emotional chapter um, in in my grief that I was least comfortable talking about, which is that at a certain point in cleaning out my parents' house, I did develop this phobia of germs um, that, you know, now I think to us in mid-pandemic, or gosh, we're not even, who, know, who knows what stage of the pandemic we're in, right? Um, but it, it doesn't seem that odd, right, to anyone now to be worried about about germs or contagion. But at the time, it felt very um, kind of over the top to me. And it wasn't something that I had dealt with before. It kind of came on as a surprise. It was very much attached to my grief. And it was, um, you know, it was a manifestation of of the, the fear that somebody else in my family would get sick. Um, and I thought that if I were wary enough and vigilant enough about dirt, germs, um, bad air, all kinds of things, I was going to be able to keep everyone I love safe, um, which of course is never true. Um, but I think going through the objects was, you know, on the one hand, it could bring me closer to my parents, um, which I wanted in my grief. You know, I wanted to kind of spend time with them. Um, it's a way of kind of bringing them back to yourself, um, bringing back to you the, the people that you miss so much. But because I was doing that for really a couple of years, I mean, it took my brother and me that long to go through all the things in the house. Because we were spending such a long time on it, I was never, I wasn't moving away. I wasn't separating from my parents. I wasn't um, kind of letting the grief settle. I mean, if you, you could almost think of it like a sediment in the water, right? If you're constantly stirring the water, the sediment's always swirling around. And that's kind of how how it was for me. Um, so, you know, I, get, I think it was aiding the grieving process in the sense that as I was looking at and considering all these objects and thinking about stories, about um, family stories and writing all of these things down, it was helping me kind of process my feelings about them. But at the same time, it meant that it that was always front and center in my mind, and it was never sort of being allowed to take a back seat to what was going on in the present. Um, you know, wasn't allowing me to kind of focus on moving on with career and other family obligations and that sort of thing. So, you know, the phobia itself was obviously a, a form of anxiety. And it's interesting that since then, um, and since the book has come out, I've had several people say to me, I've never, you know, read anybody else or heard of anybody else talking about how anxiety is a part of um, grief. And I have, I mean, I have read some articles um, in the time that I was going through it. And afterward, I have read some, 
some more pieces about how anxiety ought to be considered, you know, one of the stages of grief, um, because a lot of people do experience, but I think it's not talked about as much. Um, and certainly several people who have come to me and said, you know, thank you for that chapter, because I thought I was the only person who had kind of gone into this really deep anxiety when my mother died. Um, so that, that has been interesting to me to hear. Mm-hmm. The final essay in the collection is in, in many ways an exercise in what it means to let go of objects. It places you as the narrator in the complicated emotional position of managing one final tag sale at your parents' house. So my question for you is, in what ways might we help our loved ones live on, whether through objects they loved or in our memories of them? And what is the sum of trifles? Wow. So letting go, you know, that's the, that is hard. It's hard to let go of those objects. When I had to do that final tag sale, I, I really didn't want to do it. Um, my brother wanted to hold a sale. I didn't want to work at it, but in the end, um, I did. And it ultimately ended up being a much less harrowing experience than I had expected. Um, I think by then I'd spent so much time with the objects that I was more ready to let them go than, than I had even realized. Um, as far as helping, you know, our loved ones live on at this point, it's been 10 years since my parents died. Um, it's been several years since I really, you know, kind of finished the, the final draft of the book in the form that it was ultimately published. And I think that the way that they have lived on for me has been, you know, through actually my writing um, of that book, the publishing of the book, which now, you know, people have been reading it. Some people who knew my parents um, have written or called or spoken to me and um, talked about how wonderfully it for them, they felt that the book brought them back. Um, so in that sense, you know, I feel like my parents are kind of living on through the book. They're living on through memory. But in particular, my mother, for me, as I continue to write and do research, um, you know, she's with me all the time because she is the one who kind of inculcated in me this this curiosity or that, you know, that curiosity ought to be one of the driving forces of what I do every day. Um, so in that way, for me, you know, she is living on. Um, I think, what is the sum of trifles? I don't know if I have a great answer to that. Um, I, I think I'm going to be kind of looking forever, right, until until it's my time to go on and my son has to deal with all of my junk. Um, but in the end, I mean, for me, it comes around to stories, storytelling, curiosity, and all of that ultimately is a way to connect with other people, um, which who are always more important than any object can ever be, right? That's right. That's yeah. beautiful. So I have just one last question for you, and okay. that's... What are, you, what are you hoping that readers will come away from the sum of trifles understanding better about the life of objects and the stories they contain? I mean, I guess it's a, a bit of what I just said is that 
that objects should be, um, you know, and when I say objects, I'm, I'm largely talking about objects that do hold some kind of meaning for you, some kind of either sentimental, historical, cultural meaning. Um, but it could be, and, and it doesn't mean that has to be an expensive or a, a object or an object that, you know, somebody other than yourself could see as valuable, but that objects are this way of, you know, refracting the world that we can see, uh, learn more about ourselves and learn more about the people we know through the objects that we we hold on to through the objects that we gravitate toward. Um, I mean, I didn't write the book with a didactic purpose. Um, but in the end, if anybody, you know, gets to the end of it and decides that they want to go, you know, clean out their closet, fine. If they decide that they want to use it as um, an entry point to talking with uh, their family members or their friends about the meaning of certain objects for them um, or the meaning of objects that they want to pass down to their children or grandchildren. I think that's great. If, if people um, find anything, you know, any solace in it, if they're experiencing grief, um, if they've lost someone and they find any solace in the book, then I'm ecstatic um, for that. So, you know, I just hope that if, um, I just am thrilled if anybody reads it, honestly, <laughs> at the end of the day. And, um, the people who have gotten in touch with me to say that it meant something to them. Um, I've been so appreciative of that and, um, you know, I'm happy. I'm happy that the book could, could do that. Oh, wonderful. And it's a great book. Well worth reading. Thank you, Julia, so much for being on the show with us today. It's been a real joy to talk to you about your book. Thank you so much, Zoe. My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to an interview with writer Julia Ridley-Smith about her essay collection, The Sum of Trifles, on New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening. <laughs>